He then, last episode, talking about anarchism, we discussed how government, any form of government, good or bad, is inherently unnatural. Uh, you, you said it's all artificial, right? I never say anything. I'm simply the messenger, the translator. I'm Prometheus, stealing fire from the gods to bring enlightenment to humanity. Oh, okay. Uh, listeners, for those of you who haven't realized it yet, he then, while great at teaching us philosophy, quite clearly has delusions of grandeur. Stealing fire, what are you talking about? <laughs> In Greek mythology, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans as civilization and enlightenment. But more importantly, uh, all I heard was you saying I'm great at teaching philosophy. All right, all right, don't let it get to your head. If it gets much bigger, you're not going to be able to get up in the morning. Hey, <laughs> that's what she said? Oh, chill out, Michael Scott. This is a family-friendly show. Oh, what, you don't let women say things in your family? <laughs> like, I won't be baited by you. I won't. <clears throat> Back to philosophy. <laughs> Jerk. Last time we talked about government being artificial, but overall, we tend to like governments and the subsequent civilizations that they grow. Sure, civilizations gave us roads, planes, the internet, and allow us to give you us. Uh, sure, there are a lot of faults, but... Are, wait, are you saying we're a fault? I, I would never. We're clearly among the most wonderful of gifts. I was just saying there are some faults with government, but we definitely net benefit from cooperation, infrastructure, and laws. Okay, so, if we want some government, how do we decide what's best? That's what I want to talk about today. Alright, do the thing so we can get into it. Don't be Aristotle, by your Plato knowledge, cause we got our game I like. We'll Vinny, Vitty, Vici, and Mustachio, Nietzsche, and we'll never miss the marks, cause I'm awesome, he's heathen, and this is our podcast show. So, how do we decide what kind of government is best? What is best government? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Cool your jets, my dude. We gotta do the little intro blurbs ordeal first. Where we say something like, Welcome to the show that feels like you're just hanging out with two super awesome dudes, but then you end up learning philosophy without even knowing it. Yeah, uh, something like that. But we gotta mention uh, what differentiates us from the other super boring philosophy shows. Also, something about how you're really pretentious, but make the philosophy unpretentious, and that I'm the good looks of the show. Close, close. I would uh, tweak it to say that you bring the comic books, the movies, TV shows, you know... All the rest of that pop culture nonsense to teach philosophical concepts through things we might be more familiar with. Mm. Do we have to do that every episode? Hey man, we're a legit podcast show. We gotta be professional about this. Eh, let's skip it this time. Mm. Alright, fine. Okay. So, pre-government. Imagine you're living in the wild, pre-civilization, naked and afraid. How am I naked? Have you ever killed an animal, gutted it, and worn its skin as clothing? No. Then sorry to break it to you, but clearly you don't have the skills to be clothed in a state of nature. Wait, have you? Right, so there you are, naked and afraid. You don't have to keep repeating that point. <laughs> and you meet another person. Actually, a few people. And you all want to cooperate to be able to do more than you could all individually. We're building a community. Awesome. Hopefully there's a seamstress there. And you all agree to some rules of how your cooperation is going to go. So we're making laws. Exactly. And laws, by design, are restrictions in a way. Everyone is coming out better off, but you're all choosing to give up a slight bit of freedom in exchange. Oh, I'm a fan of freedom. Can, can you walk me through why I would need to give it up? Don't worry, you're not going to become a prisoner or anything. You're just losing a little bit of freedom. 
Say, for example, you and uh, Steve and Meg are great at farming, so you all are going to be farmers in this new society, which is great. We need farmers. Jimmy, however, <laughs> Jimmy's not about to win any Farmer of the Year awards anytime soon. They're highly coveted awards. Mm, and Jimmy's very sad about it, too. <laughs> but anyway, you all come up with an agreement that you three farm and Jimmy doesn't. But he's still going to do his part. He'll uh, Jimmy will watch over the farm and provide security against whatever else is out there. So that the rest of you can sleep soundly, you know? Mm-hmm. And in return, three farmers pool together some of their crops to feed Jimmy. What do you think? That sounds like a great trade. What freedom am I losing? See, it's so slight that it's hard to even notice. But you're now obligated to give some of your stuff, in this example, some food, to someone else. You're no longer 100% free to do whatever you want. You have an obligation. Well, feel free to call me Captain America because I love freedom. But that sounds like a totally valid trade, yeah. I'll give up that bit of freedom in exchange for security. Okay. So you all agree and make a contract. A social contract. Alright, social contract today's topic. Right you are, it is. And that's exactly what social contract theory is. It says that individuals agree to give up a certain degree of freedom in exchange for collective security. It's about the legitimacy of government. Uh, So government is legitimate because the people agreed to it. You got it. The English Enlightenment philosopher Thomas Hobbes is a big name in social contract theory. He wrote a book titled Leviathan, where he said, In a state of nature, life is, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Oh, sounds like my mom, actually. Whoa, whoa, you can't say that about your mother. Hey, hey, I'm not saying that as a description of my mom. I'm saying that's also what she thinks. Is... Is everything all right there? No, totally, she's lovely, just not particularly optimistic. You were saying... Okay. Worried, but continuing. With his (laughs) view of human nature, Hobbes believed that without governments and laws in a 100% free world, there'd be endless war and people would plunder, rape, and murder. Hobbes doesn't sound like he has the highest impression of human nature. Why is it not going to be so negative and violent? Mm, I guess that gets down to human nature itself. Without civilization, without our socialization and upbringing, we're, we're taught how to behave. What are we? Not pirates. Most people wouldn't go around plundering and pillaging. But is that because we are that way by nature? Is that in our nature to be nicer, I guess? Or were we nurtured away from violence? Or Mm. is it just because laws deter us? Or what's going on? Now we're getting into nature versus nurture, which is my wheelhouse with psychology. And what does psychology have to say about the matter? (laughs) Oh man, you just opened up one of the oldest psychology debates of all time. Ah, yes, you know how I do enjoy stirring controversy. I surely do. Uh, So with psychology, we're basically going to fall into two main schools of thought. Behaviorism says it's all nurture, and biopsychology suggests more nature influence. Okay, so two fields for two different ideas, I gotcha. Kinda, but it's not exactly split down the middle. Biopsychologists recognize nurture, but pure behaviorists don't recognize nature. One of the most well-known behaviorists was John B. Watson, who was famously quoted as saying, Give me a dozen healthy infants, well-informed, and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take any one at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant chief, and yes, even a beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocation, 
and race of his ancestors. Okay, not gonna lie, that sounds really controlling and manipulative. Borderline supervillain? <laughs> yeah, he, he, he kind of was. He's infamous for the Little Albert experiment, where he taught a baby to fear a harmless lab rat, of which he was previously unafraid, by hitting a steel bar with a hammer when the rat came close. Wait, okay, so to clarify, he's not hitting the baby, he's hitting the rat? <laughs> he's not hitting the baby. He's, he's, he's not even hitting the rat. He's just hitting a bar near both of them, and it's spooking the kid. Wow, that... that I mean, one's evil, but one's, like, super evil. <laughs> okay, okay. That's that's still really sad. That's pretty screwed up. So he's... No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the 1930s, so, you know, ethics didn't exist back then. I guess this is why philosophy is so important. Man. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So that was behaviorism, saying it's all nurture. What about the other side? Does, uh, was it biopsychology? Yeah. Does biopsychology have any similar experiments you can use to, uh... Make us sad all over again? Uh, maybe. Ever hear of the murder gene? Oh, great. This is this should be good. <laughs> so, uh, there's a few genes at play, but the core one is monoamine oxidase A. Uh, this gene has been consistently found in individuals with antisocial personality disorder and can lead to a greater disposition toward murder. Uh, disclaimer, as with any personality disorder, of course, not everyone with it will be a murderer and most will not be murderers. But the gene's existence was even successfully used to avoid a first-degree murder conviction in a criminal case back in 2009. But don't worry, the guy was still given 32 years in prison, but the ethical and legal implications are fascinating. Oh, there's a lot we could break down there, but <laughs> right. overall, this is way more depressing than I expected you to roll into. Oh, don't worry. Nature and nurture can both lead us to bad things, but all in all, I feel like people want to make the right choices and are generally groomed to do so, and that's pretty cool. Uh, yes, you do present such a wholesome point of view, but I guess we can't really know. Or at least Hobbes didn't think the same as you. His whole bit about life being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short <laughs> came from his understanding of us as animals. And that's something I think we too frequently disregard. We are animals. Brilliant animals, sure, but animals nonetheless. And in a state of nature, he thought it would be ruled by more animalistic urges, you know? Mm. Actually, oh, this takes us back to back to psychology. We could talk about Maslow's hierarchy again. Remind us what was it? What it uh, was? Maslow talked about a ladder of needs. The bottom is survival stuff, food and water, whereas the top of that hierarchy ah. I got at that time is self-actualization. Uh, how does this relate here? So Maslow talked about needing to fulfill the lower requirements before being able to work your way up the higher needs, right? Yeah, yeah. If you don't have food and water and aren't comfortably surviving, you're not going to be worried about tapping your highest potential. So in a state of nature, since we're not exactly fat and comfortable on our couches with endless food available for us in its natural habitat at the grocery store, <laughs> we're uh, lower down on Maslow's hierarchy. And I'd say that's the more animalistic part, right? That's where we're most common with most animals. Mm. Uh, either way, Hobbes thought that to avoid that chaos, people contract with each other to create a political community where we give up power to an authority. Mm, since we're consenting to it, it doesn't sound like we're forming any old government. This sounds like democracy. Consent to the governed. Actually, even if that authority becomes dictatorial, Hobbes believed that it was better than the alternative of a state of nature. Right. Okay. Definitely doesn't jive with democracy anymore. But he's saying that any form of organization, even dictatorial, is better than nothing? Yep, that's exactly it. But in a dictatorship, even if it's better than nothing, the people don't consent to it. That's what makes it a dictatorship. 
or even in a democracy. We, we vote, but there are winners and losers, and, and maybe the supporters of the losers would say they didn't consent to whomever won the election, you know? And that's where I see a shortcoming of social contract theory. But let's look at the Democratic one you just mentioned, where your politician loses the election. Yeah, I don't want the other person. I didn't vote for him. You can't decide to play a game, lose, and then say you don't like the outcome. You knew the rules and agreed to play, so if your favored politician loses, the opposition still has legitimacy. That's kind of what I figured you'd say for that one. I have less of an issue with that, because you're right, no one questions the legitimacy there. But I'm more concerned with the dictatorship or monarchy or any authoritarian system where the people may not have agreed to the rules. How's their legitimacy there? Mm. Yeah, there, there may not be, but... Hobbes is more concerned about the end state of are people better off or worse off than nature, just just for the overall benefit of the governed. A little utilitarian that way, like we talked about in our very first episode. You know, there's definitely a supervillain who subscribes to this theory. The classic and cheesily named Doctor Doom from the Fantastic Four. Do what you do, Buckaroo. Never, never say that again. Everyone thinks Dr. Doom is evil because... Wait, 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 let me guess. Is it because he's named Dr. Doom? Interestingly, no. Doom is short for Doomechimus. Wait, really? Absolutely not. (laughs) Everyone thinks he's evil because his name is Dr. Doom. (laughs) Victor Von Doom, if you will. And he kind of is. He's a villain in the Marvel Universe. He rules his own nation of Latveria, and he's pretty convinced that he'd be the best ruler for the entire world. Weirdly enough, he's not really wrong... Through an oracle, Dr. Doom saw a vision of every possible future and found that the only future where the world survives is under his ironclad rule. And sure, he'll stop any uprising or political dissenters from ever questioning his rule or authority, but, you know, it's saving the universe, I guess, so better than nothing. Um, and the Fantastic Four trying to stop this savior of the universe... Are they good guys? <laughs> these these are the kinds of moral quandaries that only the ridiculousness of comic books could provide. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, Dr. Doom reminds me of another philosopher with an equally catchy name, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Wait, wait, let me guess. He's a French philosopher. Actually, no. What? With a name like that, I didn't think I could be wrong on the guess. He was Genevan. It's definitely not a country. You know, like... Geneva. Yeah, not a country. That's part of Switzerland. At best, it's a convention. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> it was an independent city-state back during his time. And I don't really care, but I know he cared. At book signings, he used to autograph his books, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Citizen of Geneva. Ah, this was when? Enlightenment time? Yeah, 1700s. It's kind of odd to think of 1700s authors sitting there doing a book signing, but I guess it makes sense. Mm, yeah. Some things just don't change. (laughs) The book he's most famous for is called The Social Contract. So did he start the theory? Uh, Actually, he was writing after Hobbes, who we were just talking about. Mm. But you're right that his book is what named all of this. And you'll probably also like this, but Rousseau believed that humans weren't as brutish and animalistic in nature. Ooh, you're right. I do like that more. Well, one thing we have to remember when studying philosophy, or studying anything really, is that we can't just go by what we like, you know? We can search for truth and goodness, but whether we like something or not is irrelevant in that search. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, Professor Boring. Let's get back to Rousseau. (laughs) (laughs) Rousseau had an interesting point of view. He talked about the ideal being a, quote, noble savage, unquote. Usually when Europeans talk about savages, they were being racist against, uh, well, 
anyone not in European. Yeah. But that's not what he's getting at here. He considers it to be the ideal middle ground. Quote, Maintaining a middle position between the indolence of our primitive state and the petulant activity of our egocentrism must have been the happiest and most durable epoch. Ooh, that was your best classy voice ever. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> bad, 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 bad props. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't a fan of um, posh cultured European elite. How was that? Was that good? Well, that's not, not too bad. I mean, not quite my level, but... It'll pass. Of course not. It couldn't be. Yeah. Uh, but I love that he called it <laughs> petulant activity, as in childish. He also called it the fatal enlightenment of civil man. Because in a society, we're worried about dumb stuff, you know, things that aren't actually important. I mean, we see that in everyday life. Oh, for sure. Everyone's always stressed out and upset about something or another that doesn't actually matter. Traffic sucked, or your coffee order was wrong, so your whole day is ruined. That's absolutely petulant. But if the noble savage is the middle ground, what's the other end? Rousseau thought people in complete nature were better than Hobbes thought they were, but it still isn't the ideal place to be because there's no cooperation and order. He called that the stupidity of the brutes or our primitive state. But he thought the middle position of this noble savage who cooperated but lived alongside nature was the peak of humanity and that advances since then are detrimental, actually. He thought that people could be free and good in that natural state, hmm. uncorrupted by vices and artificialness of civilization. All right, I'm feeling this guy more and more. So what does his book say? The opening, opening, <laughs> the opening line is great. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. Those who think themselves the masters of others are indeed greater slaves than they. So there's a primitive state, which isn't good, but then eventually society starts developing, and we make laws and regulations. You are on the voice acting game today. Mad props, <laughs> by the way. But, uh, but no, yeah, I get this guy. I like laws. Smart move. But then we start competing with one another while also being dependent on each other. Mm, not so smart. And he called this the degenerate phase of society. But then once we give up some of our natural rights... Through the social contract, we can actually remain free because we're gaining some protection from this competition between each other. And I'm guessing you're not talking about the capitalism kind of competition. Mm, more the competition that might cause people to steal or murder one another over resources. So Rousseau is saying that by giving up some of our natural rights, the abilities we have in nature... So, like, the actual ability to fight someone and beat them up and take their resources, like animals do. Like I do. Once we give up those rights, we're actually more free because now we're not worried about someone pummeling us to death to steal or... Bread or livestock or something like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Actually, I was going to say my cask of ale or barrel of wine, but yours works the same. You would, you teetotaler, or what was that you wrote on our website? No, no, you're the teetotaler. I'm the tippler. You're a goon is what you are. Ah, slap the goon, the traditional Australian drinking game? What? No, of course you have a reference for that. What, what even is that? Yeah, don't worry about it. Just a shout out for our one Australian listener. But by subjecting ourselves to the authority of laws, we also protect ourselves and ensure our freedom. Freedom through giving up freedom. That's an interesting take. And Rousseau said ideally all of this would be a direct democracy. He also thought these governing bodies couldn't be too large, or rather that the countries couldn't be too large. 
That goes back to him being a proud Genevan in a way. He thought France was too large to be a direct democracy and embodied this social contract and have legitimate authority over the people there. Geneva was a city-state, and that was much more manageable. You know, Rousseau's theory sounds a lot like what happened in The Walking Dead. The only community in the show that has consistently thrived, with a few setbacks here or there, was pleasant little Alexandria. This community is filled with folks who are looking out for one another and utilizing their respective skills and abilities to benefit the community. Mm, okay, so they give up their natural rights to beat each other up for the betterment of the community. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> of course, The Walking Dead is on board with the theory that people are inherently bad, so it gets screwed up eventually. But Alexandria keeps coming back and continuing this level of democracy, so it's about as close as a show that bleak is going to get to a successful post-apocalyptic community. It's the only community with a chance at restoring the government's long-thought lost. Uh, those governments favored by our last philosopher for this episode, John Locke. Mm. He's the father of liberalism. Not not liberal in the way it's used in modern politics, but classical liberalism. The ideas of individual rights, rule of law, free markets, private property, basically the basis for a lot of modern society. Wasn't John Locke super important to the framers of the U.S. Constitution or something? He was. Actually, the phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, comes from Locke's writing. He advocated life, health, liberty, and property. So where does Locke sit on the human nature discussion? Are we naturally goodies or baddies? <laughs> uh, Locke's writings influenced Rousseau, so you could probably guess there. Another point for man is naturally good. Yeah. The only thing I want to add by introducing Locke here is that he believed that we developed societies in order to resolve conflicts in a civil way, without having to constantly war with one another. But a lot of his writings are very similar to what we talked about with Rousseau, and Locke's book on the topic is far more annoyingly named, so we can skip it. Wait, no, nope, you've got to tell me the name. Mm, okay, so the first guy we talked about, Thomas Hobbes, he wrote Leviathan. Then Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote the social contract. John Locke, however, wrote two treatises of government in the former the false principles and foundation of Sir Robert Filmer and his followers are detected and overthrown. The latter is an essay concerning the true original extent and end of civil government. That entire thing right there was the title. That's a title. <laughs> it was like three sentences long. There was definitely different clauses in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're not wrong there. It shortens to just two treatises. I, I hope so, but yeah, that name is annoying enough to not want to read it. Brevity, man. Brevity. Ah, oh, jeez. Okay, so <laughs> I get this social contract stuff. Uh, if we the people agree to be governed or make a contract for society, that's Gucci. That's what the kids say. It is. But I definitely don't remember signing any contract unless I did it when I was a baby, and that definitely nullifies the validity of a contract. Though my handwriting is probably still roughly as good. Mm, yes, I've definitely watched babies miss their mouths when trying to eat, so signing a contract is probably a bit too advanced for them. <laughs> Dad. But you're right, you're right. We didn't agree to anything. We just are under the governments in which we were born. And that's where I see a fault of social contract theory for sure. It talks about how we may have originally agreed, but then says it's a tacit agreement now. 
Ah, tacit, as in like a unspoken agreement. Yeah, basically, which I suppose makes a bit of sense, but not entirely. If you don't agree to a government, and as long as it's not an authoritarian government, you're free to leave and go to another nation where you agree more with the governing system. Okay, sure, there's some rationale to that, but that seems a bit weak. Yeah, you can count that as a criticism of the social contract if you'd like. I definitely will. I already made a mental note of it. John Locke is a dweeb. (laughs) But there's another method of creating an ideal government by consent of the governed, which aims to create the fairest society. Mmm, sounds wholesome to me. Do go on. This is a thought experiment called the veil of ignorance. Doesn't philosophy generally aim to lift us out of ignorance? Oh, hold on. Let me explain. This is a genuinely good form of ignorance. Imagine that you're removed from the world, behind a veil. Or you can picture the empty whiteness from the Matrix before they load any programs. Either way, you're separated from the world. Now, this is going to be the hardest part, but try to remove your understanding of who you are. (laughs) Okay, that's getting really existential. How do we do that? See, our experiences no doubt shape our understanding of the world how we're treated because of who we are, physical characteristics. These change how we experience life, but imagine a default sim from The Sims before you customize them. Hmm. No clothes, but no race either, no religion, no sex, no idea of how much education or wealth you may have, no imperfections, nor perfections, just a blank slate. You have to do this because you need to make some decisions about the world. And again, your experiences shape how you experience and understand the world, for better or for worse. So we're trying to remove those biases. Okay, I am a shapeless blob. What's next? Eh, don't be too harsh on yourself. You're still a human being, (laughs) albeit without any characteristics, yeah. now No different than how I am now. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It's all right, buddy. But from behind this veil of ignorance, you need to decide how the world or society should be set up. You have to decide power structures and classes or divisions if you want them, how jobs are distributed, all of the hierarchy. The kicker is that once you've completed this theoretical work, and only then, you will be placed into that society. But you don't know where. You could be anyone. Mm. Naturally, you don't want to live a bad or like tough life. So you want to make a society that is just and fair for everyone. So there's a chance I could end up the king if I say the society will have a king. Sure, there's definitely a chance, but there's a much higher chance that you'll be a serf, because I'm sure any good kingdom will have far more serfs than kings. What would you do in your society? Say you're really into philosophy and you think philosophers naturally have thought about things a lot and... Therefore, would make great rulers. So the rulers in the ruling class should be composed solely of philosophers. Are you writing your own treaties to set up a society where you rule over everyone else? Hey, I, I'm just saying. Plato said something similar, but no one calls him out on it. He's lucky. I'm pretty sure Socrates was sentenced to death for being a similar know-it-all, but all right, fine. Let's see how this goes. Mm. Rip, Socrates. Too soon, man. Too soon. <laughs> You're right. Too soon. It's only been like 2,500 years or so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. So we'll, I'll, I'll dial those jokes back. Okay. Or perhaps you have a vendetta against a certain group of people because they wronged you in the past or something, and 
you think they shouldn't receive benefits because they're not deserving or that they'll waste it. Whether you say those things out loud or not, maybe you think those thoughts. Ooh, okay. So if I don't know if I'm a man or a woman, rich or poor, what race, what religion, etc., then I can get past my biases and create a just society. In fact, you don't even know if you're into punk rock or some other inferior genre of music or if you're... (laughs) athletic or have a disability or anything about your condition in the world you're completely ignorant rude my girlfriend tells me i'm quite woke the wokest (laughs) but all right but all right so without knowing anything i would create the most just society because i could be at the bottom rung of this society i would want even that bottom worst off person to have a decent life so what kind of society would i create How am I to know? It's you doing the creating. Be creative, dude. Be creative. Okay, okay. Well, it takes me a while to get through editing one episode of this podcast. Designing an entire society is going to take just a tad longer. All right, all right, fine. So this concept of a veil of ignorance from behind which to more objectively design a society, this, this isn't anything new. It's been around for ages in discussions of justice and what's most just and what is fair and all that. But in modern contexts, I think most of the American philosopher John Rawls, who wrote about it in his book, A Theory of Justice. I guess if you're going to be lazy in designing your own society, we can turn to Rawls to see what he advocates. I'm behind the veil. You don't know if I'm lazy or not. Ooh, okay. Fair enough. Rawls talked about two principles of justice, liberty and difference. The principle of liberty is all about maximizing individual liberties without infringing on the rights of others. Pretty easy. Mm -hmm. The principle of difference says that any differences in society, should there be any, should aid the disadvantaged. So he's saying that everything doesn't have to be 100% equal, but if things are unequal, they should help out those who have the least. Like certain government programs are made only to benefit the poor. Exactly. Those aren't open to everyone, but it helps the most disadvantaged. Right, yeah. And the difference principle also says that all advantageous situations should be accessible to everyone. And it's not saying that you have to give it to everyone, just it's not a handout, but it can't be exclusive. Everyone should be able to reach it, you know, like it's equal opportunity to get to it. Mm. Okay, yeah, no, that, that leads me to a pop culture reference. I've been racking my brain trying to come up with one for society with this capability of Upward movement and freedom that wasn't just a straight utopia, but I got something. All right, this will be interesting. Hit me. I would, but social distancing. Right, Ready Player One is the way to go. Thank you, Steven Spielberg, for our movie rendition, but especially thank you to Ernest Cline for the original pop culture-heavy novel. Um, Actually, I'm going to admit I have not watched that movie, but from the trailers it looks entirely like bubblegum pop culture references, (laughs) and it seems like just pop culture references what's what's the meat weirdly enough it's definitely the world they've created rather than the many references that they make that ties in most effectively rawls believes in this capability for upward movement and that's virtually the entire plot of ready player one okay okay i think i'm getting it uh someone told me something about an easter egg i'm not sure yes yes exactly ready player one takes place in a not as dystopic as it sounds future where the real world sucks so most everyone lives in a virtual reality world that is honestly Just the absolute sickest thing ever. Want to go rock climbing with Spider-Man? Check. Want to have Sub-Zero make you an ice skating rink? Ooh, check. Want to have a nice cold brewski with good old Abraham Lincoln? Ah, check with a top hat on top. This sounds like a pretty cool world, yeah? (laughs) It is. The system is called the Oasis, and its possibilities are limitless. 
The original developer of the system, James Halliday, passed away, but lef left the capability of controlling the Oasis to the person who could find that hidden Easter egg you mentioned earlier. Of course, there are corporations who want to use it for evil, but the egg is specifically made so that anybody has the capability of winning the competition and becoming the lead of this virtual society. Okay, yeah, perfect. There it is. That's the uh, difference principle. Does everyone therefore treat each other nicely because anyone could be the boss? Psh, you want a story without conflict? Ah, yes, you know how I adore conflict. Yes, nearly romantically. <laughs> Spoilers ahead for the 2018 film. Skip ahead 15 seconds if you're scared. Uh, well, <clears throat> the aforementioned corporations want to rule and update the system so they can flood it with ads, in the movie version at least, while our lead wants, eventually, to make the system available for everyone's use and further institutes days off so that everyone can experience the real world a bit. It's a surprisingly hopeful ending for a world where everyone is pretty okay with living a fantasy. Unusual choice to praise rather than demonize technology, but hey, that's how Star Trek got famous, so... Okay, well, I guess there we go. I just uh, heard that movie had tons of references and didn't really know anything about the plot. Yeah. Glad you're able to do something out of it. <laughs> I needed a movie so hopeful it bordered on ridiculous, and that's the winner. You're welcome, John Rawls. I'm sure he's eternally grateful. <laughs> well, um... I need your sass. That's about all I've got. That about wraps it up for my notes on social contract theory. Why don't we have you summarize in parts this time? Okay, so very first... Hobbes and Leviathan. What was Hobbes' theory? That's right, that's right. Uh, Leviathan, like Dr. Doom. Even if it means giving up essential liberties, better to do that for the good of the community. Believes people are inherently bad, and a good old spanking keeps them in order. Mm, uh, why are you always going to make it weird? But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so people in any organization, better than a state of nature. Hmm. Next up is the beautifully named Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke. Ah, like Alexandria from The Walking Dead. People are inherently good, and we utilize uh, the mutually beneficial skills to look out for each other, rather than doing that murder stuff. Exactly. So we give up some natural rights, some freedom, for more freedom. Heck yeah. Okay. And lastly, John Rawls. Ah, right. The veil of ignorance and maximizing liberties without infringing on the rights of others. A world where anyone can rise to the top, like in Ready Player One. All right. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and to sum it all up, what is social contract theory at its core? Ah, that we give up some of our freedoms and liberties to ensure a better overall working society for everyone involved. And wow, my brain is exhausted now. Mm, it doesn't take much. What was that? Nothing, nothing. You're nothing. Ah, can we truly know if we even exist? Oh, you put the suffering in insufferable. Well, I'm honored that you were able to join us today. <laughs> I hope you stay well. <laughs> Especially in these times. Um, yeah, and join us next week for, what, episode 12? We are getting along in here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got any idea what, uh, what we're going to touch on next, or just going to keep it a mystery for everybody? I don't really have an idea of what I'm going to do in the next 10, 20 minutes, so who's to say <laughs> fair enough well you can bet that we're going to have something very good and brain melting for you in the future and until then uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wholesome and Heathen adios Wholesome and Heathen do not endorse the establishment of brutal dictatorships ruled with an iron fist unless first properly established that the universe explodes otherwise. They do, however, endorse the establishment of a virtual reality where I can go web-slinging with Spider-Man. Get on it, Elon Musk. We all know it's going to be you. Tell us your preferred dystopic ruler at wholesomeandheathen.com.